0: Well, as you can see on the screen, we are uh, continuing our study through the Book of Acts today. So you can uh, you can go ahead and turn to Acts fourteen. <clears throat> We're picking up in Paul's first missionary journey. That's where we've been in kind of this little mini series this semester, uh, working through story by story, um, just learning a lot about uh, the mission and the role of the Jews and how God's sovereignly working through that in uh to get the gospel to Gentiles and and just lots of little truths kind of packed in those stories along the way. But just I know we got our bearings last week, but but let's kind of look big picture here. We're in this this mission journey and it started with the commission in in Antioch. Um, kind of that home base. We called it last week for the Gentile mission and God called them out of the church there, from the church, in the midst of a worship service, uh, and set them apart for this this missionary work, or what we call a church planting work here. And then they, they went to the ministry, they, they, or they did ministry at Cyprus. They went to the, the island and, and evangelized the island, kind of from one end, to, one end to the other. And then from there they moved to Poseidon, Antioch, different from their home church, uh, base. And, and when we were there, when we looked at that text, we heard Paul's first recorded sermon to the Jews. Um, and he told them that the, their king had come, and now the nation has to repent and be used as a light to the Gentiles, like they were intended to do. And again, we saw that some believed and some don't, and the ones that don't get really upset, and uh, and they start persecuting this new movement that God is doing. And uh, but in the midst of all that, God's saving Gentiles, and then and then the apostles have to flee to the next city, and that's sort of the pattern. That we saw, and we saw that last week, as he went to uh, Iconium, and almost the exact same thing happened. He started with the Jews in the synagogue, and was preaching the gospel there. and And they, some believed, some got really upset. Gentiles started believing. The whole city divides around Paul and Barnabas and this this um this gospel and. Kind of at the end of that story, they try to stone the apostles. I mean, it's just, it's just like kind of out of control. And so the apostles hear about it and they, they get out of there. They go to the next city. And so, uh, sorry, I kind of get a little behind here in my outline. So there's ministry to Iconium. And then today they flee from Iconium and they go to, to, uh, Luke calls it the, the cities, plural of Lyconia. That's an area. And there's a couple of cities, Lystra and Derby, that, uh, that Paul hits during this this journey. But he really, Luke, only records, he only focuses in on this city uh, at Lystra, the city of Lystra, and what happens there. And uh just so we can get a, a, a geographical kind of idea of what's been going on. So Antioch of Syria is where they started. So they're over here. This is the Mediterranean Sea. They go to the island of Cyprus, um and then from there they go to Antioch, up there the other Antioch. So Cyprus, ultimately to Antioch. And then Iconium is here. And that's where we left off last week. And our story today, we'll see Lystra Derby. And then instead of taking the easy route along the road here back to... It's not really easy. <laughs> you got to go across a mountain range there. But um, taking the journey back home this way, he stops and turns around and goes all the way back... Um, to visit the churches that he had planted, so we'll we'll learn a lot about that next week, um, and the significance of that, why he's doing that, and how that impacts us, and how we think about missions. Um, but just for this week, he Paul is going into this new city of Lystra, and it's it's probably the same kinds of things happen in Lystra. He probably starts at the synagogue, and there's unrest and those kinds of things. But Luke doesn't give us any of that, so Luke is is really keyed in um, on this city of Lystra, and and instead of starting with the Jews and evangelizing Gentiles, he he doesn't record that. He focuses on the almost exclusively on Gentiles here in this city. And the story starts with a dramatic healing, kind of in in the public square, and the Gentile crowds think that the Greek gods have come to visit them in Paul and Barnabas. And then they try to worship the apostles. But the apostles, they, they they try to desperately explain why this is so bad. Like, you can't worship us, guys. This is not... This is the, the wrong idea here. And so what we've got in this story is our first real encounter, recorded encounter, uh, with idolatry. Okay? With idolatry. And the problem, in particular, that idolatry is going to pose to the mission. And so... I'm calling this lesson just the problem of idolatry. That's kind of the, the main theme that we see running throughout this, this story. And, you know, we're just asking these questions. Luke is asking these questions or having us, he's answering these kinds of questions. How do the apostles approach people who have no idea about the one true God? So previously we've only seen him interacting with Jews and, and Gentiles really that share what we might call monotheism or the, the belief in the one God. The God, of, the God of Israel. It's, and it's it's him trying to convince them from Scripture that this God has acted now in Jesus as the fulfillment of everything that was promised. But now, even though he's preaching that message of good news about Christ, what we're finding is idolatry poses a problem. They believe in multiple gods. And so how do the apostles interact with that? And what can we learn from this? What can we learn from, from this story here? And how do we combat the, the temptation toward idolatry in our own lives? And so we'll look at some of these things today in this, in this story. But before we really get going, I don't just want to assume the obvious here. What, I want to answer this question. When I talk about idolatry and we're in this text is talking about idols, uh, what do we mean? What are we getting at when we, we're talking about this concept of idolatry? Well, I've kind of got a couple statements here and we'll work through them just kind of slowly here, but it's just, when you look at scripture from the Old Testament into the New and you kind of sort of synthesize what's happening with when people are talking about idolatry in the Bible. You could say it a number of ways, but here's how my attempt at it. I would say any substitute for the living God. Any substitute for the living God. Um, and then just kind of to elaborate that, anything or anyone that humans rely on as God, functionally, or in the place of God. And so just fleshing that out is when any created thing, takes the place of the creator, so there's certain things that that God is in his being and his promise to do and be for his people, and when we start substituting that out to other things to created things, that is what the Bible calls idolatry, the worship of an idol, a created thing, something that isn't the eternal God and so if you just want a really brief terse statement it's a false god um, it's it's a false God, and since the fall. You know, if you you go back to Genesis three, where did this start? We were created uh, to know and trust God implicitly, and in the fall, we were tempted to be autonomous from God. We human beings thought, "Man, I can I can be like God in a way that's that's not how He created me in His image. It's it's I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to aspire to be Him, and to take His throne, and really begin to worship." Paul makes a commentary on that in Romans three, he says, or in Romans one. That the creation has substituted the worship of God for the worship of, of things, animals, themselves. And so it's, it's a false god, which then means that if, if it's a false god, then an idol promises to provide and protect, right? An idol promises provision, protection, and it demands worship and devotion in return, an idol, I would just say, promises lies, and then it enslaves the worshiper uh, to itself. And that's because Satan stands behind the idol. Um, again, all the way back to the garden, Satan, in the form of a serpent, that ancient snake, the book of Revelation says, um, tempted Adam and Eve away from the living God um, with a lie. That they would not surely die if they transgressed. So there's a the lie, and then enslaves the worshiper. And ultimately what an idol does, when idolatry does, is it devalues the one true God, the creator of heaven and earth. It brings him down, devalues him, and, and really provokes, elicits his anger um, at humanity. And so that's the predicament that the nations, since Genesis 3 and Genesis 10, you know, you think about, the spread of of the descendants of Noah into all the earth, and how all the nations of the earth came from the descendants of Noah back all the way back in Genesis ten, and and some of them have not heard of their creator, have heard have heard, heard not, have not heard from their creator since Babel, and so you kind of think about that, um, and it's there's just been idolatry uh, from start to finish here, and so as the story unfolds here in in the gospel uh, or in the the book of Acts. It unfolds in these four scenes that highlight how problematic and, and pervasive this idolatry is. Um, and it's it's blinding, Luke's gonna tell us, and it's it's uh it's gotta be addressed when we're thinking through uh the true worship of, of the Lord. So again, these these four scenes, if you're not already there, turn to Acts, Acts chapter fourteen. And this first scene is really um, what I've just entitled the uh, the miracle here. Just, I'm gonna, the I'm going to that one's pretty simple here. just it's the the miracle that really launches this whole this whole process and draws out the idolatry of these people. And uh, Paul and Barnabas, Paul heals this lame man. And just for context' sake, let's let's start let's pick up in verse five uh, and then the the end of the story of Iconium, and then it's going to transition into the story at Lystra. He says, when an attempt was made by both Gentiles and Jews with their rulers to mistreat them, that's the apostles, and stone them, uh, they learned of it, and they fled to Lystra and Derby, which are cities of Lyconia, into the surrounding region, and notice what they were doing, and there they continued to preach the gospel. So Luke frames it up, I mean, they're just, they're, they're continuing the mission. You know, they're being persecuted, being driven out, and so in these cities, they've been, they are, Preaching the gospel. It's kind of a summary statement. The good news of, of Christ. Now again, instead of recounting the synagogue stuff and all that stuff, we don't know if that happened or not. He, Luke just drops us into this miracle. Now, verse five, or verse uh, eight. Now at Lystra, there was a man sitting who could not use his feet. He was crippled from birth and had never walked. He listened to Paul speaking, and and Paul, looking intently at him and seeing that he had faith to be made well, said in a loud voice, stand upright on your feet. And he sprang up, and he began walking. Now, that's just this opening miracle that we're going to see garners the attention of, of the crowd here. And so, Paul's doing ministry, he's preaching the gospel, and he sees this guy, you know, one of the humbled He'd been low, outcast guy, and this dude is hanging on Paul's words. So much so that, that Paul perceives the faith of this man, that he is just, he is believing the gospel. And so, in just a moment of, of prophetic power, Paul heals this guy. He, the Lord actually, through Paul, heals this man. And so what do we, kind of, what do we make of this? What's the, it's kind of a random healing, so what, what's the significance of that? Well, a healing in Luke and Acts is a sign. Okay? It's a sign. It's like a, it's an indicator. You know, it's, it's pointing to something else beyond the actual healing itself. Even though it's, it's definitely redemptive for this man. I mean, he's, he's definitely blessed as a result of this healing. It's a sign in particular that the Messiah is here and in Acts, he's reigning. He is alive and he's, he's victorious. And he's conquering the, the power of the curse, okay? And so, as we go through this story, it's been a while, but if you remember back to Acts chapter 3, it's a long time ago. Acts 3, and you compare those two stories of Peter heals another lame guy in Israel. And there's so many parallels in this story, the, between those two stories. And it's, it's, a, it's a hint for us to understand what's actually happening in this story. And so there's echoes back to the Peter's healing, but then those, those Peter's healing is based on the fulfillment of a text in Isaiah. And so if you kind of string all this together, um, I just I'll kind of show you this, and it's God he does this through one key word. This word leaping here. So we saw in our text that he is, when Paul says this, this Gentile man leaps up and he begins to walk. That's how he describes it. So that's a very rare verb, this verb for leap here. And so we go back to Acts 3, and it, the guy does the same thing. Leaping up, he stood him began to walk, into the temple with him, walking and leaping and praising God. So there, twice, Luke draws our attention to the fact this guy's leaping. So is this just some random detail? It's not, because Isaiah's prediction in Isaiah 35.6 says that the lame shall leap like a deer and in the greek text of the of the old testament the, in the greek text the greek translation of the old testament which the apostles would have been using at that time this same rare greek word for leap is used in all these contexts and this is not some random section of isaiah, of isaiah and isaiah 35 luke has been appealing to this section throughout luke and acts and so this is pretty obvious if you're the sensitive reader so my point in all that that's not just a, sort of an academic exercise in what the bible's saying The point is that the signs of the Messiah aren't just breaking out in Jerusalem or in the nation of Israel. It's breaking out in Lystra, this Gentile area. Okay? These signs of the Messiah, which which indicate that not only Jews, but also Gentiles are being summoned into this kingdom through faith, the kingdom of the Messiah, Israel's king. And all of these sort of... Outbreaks of healing, outbreaks of, of exorcism—they're sort of like outbreaks of the kingdom's power, and it's a foretaste of what Luke and the apostles call the restoration, the healing of all things. Okay, and that's going to come when the Christ returns. This healing of all things, and so the apostles, as sort of his chief representatives at this point, there's this, there's these little outbreaks of like Christ's authority in the here and now that should point to His authority and reign and rule. Does that make sense? So that's what's coming. And, and that that restoration, that, that hope of restoration, should be central to our lives as Christians. That there's coming a day where all the suffering will be done, and Christ will reign on earth and restore as it was intended, uh, and restore this earth as it was intended to be, and even in a more glorious way than the creation uh, was at first. And so, that should be a regular part of our hope. Anyway. So the miracle is the sign or the indicator. The signs are meant to point us toward the Messiah, in the fulfillment of these, these hopes that we see in the prophets, and to authenticate the message, this good news that Paul's preaching in Lystra. But there's one major problem. What is that? This, these people don't know that. Right? They don't know about the promises. They don't know about Isaiah. They don't know about the God of Israel. And so, what happens? There's a major misinterpretation that happens as a result of this miracle. Look in verse 11. And when the crowds saw what Paul had done... Notice it doesn't say the crowds were hearing Paul's gospel message. It doesn't say that. It says when they saw what he did, meaning the miracle. When they saw what he did they lifted up their voices, saying in Lyconian, the gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. Barnabas they called Zeus and Paul Hermes, because he was the chief speaker. And not only the crowds, but look at the, the, the main dude here, the priest of Zeus, whose temple was at the entrance to the city, brought oxen and garlands to the gates, and wanted to offer sacrifices with the crowds. So, in a sense, the whole city is ready to just straight up worship Paul and Barnabas as their Greek gods. Whoops. That's a major misinterpretation of a miracle, right? And so, they haven't been paying much attention to Paul's preaching, but the miracle did get their attention. And they, I want you to miss this, they interpreted the healing according to their own religious presuppositions get that? What's well, a presupposition? Presupposition is something that's assumed to be true. Okay? That hasn't been challenged yet. So it's something that they assume to be true, and these people presuppose their views of the gods were correct. And they interpreted this miracle according to those views. So they assume that Paul and Barnabas are two of their Greek gods who've come to visit them. That's really insightful, guys. Because if we're not dealing with the problem of idolatry, of these presuppositions, people are not going to believe Christ. And so we'll flesh that out more in just a minute. And so they, they try to worship them, they bring the most expensive sacrifice, a bull. They bring garland, which was either used to go around the necks of these bulls as sort of like honoring the sacrifice to the gods, like as a way of honoring the gods. Or now that the gods are among them, I think they're just going to put them on their, their necks, or their heads as a result, as a, as a way of honoring them. And so, it's an, it's an incredible procession, and I think they're speaking in Lyconian, so Paul and Barnabas probably don't really understand what's going on until the, wreaths are here, and they're like, you know, and Paul and Barnabas immediately realize they're sacrificing to us, and so, it's an incredible processional, but, but it's idolatrous. It's idolatrous, and it's provoking God's anger, and the apostles who are meant to be the light to these Gentiles are becoming the object of worship. And so they, they catch wind of what's happening, and they're devastated. And they immediately seek to, to correct this, this misinterpretation. Look in verse 14. But when the apostles, Barnabas and Paul, heard of it, they tore their garments. That's a symbol that blasphemy is about to happen right now. So uh, they're just rending their clothes. And they're coming out into the, into, into the center of the crowd, crying out, Men, why are you doing these things? We also are men of like nature with you and we bring you good news that you should turn from these vain things to a living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. In past generations, He allowed all the nations to walk in their own ways, echoing back to Genesis 10 there. Yet He did not leave Himself without a witness. What's the witness? For he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your heart with food and gladness. And even with these words, they scarcely restrain the people from offering sacrifice to them. And so, there's a massive misinterpretation that leads to this, this desire to correct what they, they've kind of gotten off track here. And so, there's a lot we could sort of draw out from this, but, but, they're essentially confronting this response, this idolatrous response that these people have. And they start by saying, look, we're the same, we're the same level with you. We're men of like nature with you. So don't worship us. That would be a, a massive uh, wrongdoing here. And instead of that, we're actually conduits of, of a good, message of good news that you have no idea about. And it's a message of repentance. That now God is, is coming to you with the gospel that I've been preaching, that Paul's been preaching. He's coming to you saying to repent, turn from these vain idols to the living God. It's an offer of, of just wholesale repentance from, from the, from the idolatry that they've been enslaved to for years and years. Millennia. And so one little thing that's tucked away here is that the idols are vain. Or they're, they're called vain things. And that is really just underscored big time because the idols can't produce anything. They're completely worthless. And if you go and just do a study of idolatry in the Old Testament, you're going to see that again and again and again, God is contrasted as the living God, meaning He is alive, active, eternal, and the, the idols are not. They're dead. They're dumb. They can't hear. They can't speak. And so they can't deliver on their promises that they make. And so it's a message of good news because they can be delivered from this. And turn to the living God. And he he in particular roots this God as the creator. That's the common ground that we have with idolaters. With Christians and unchristians. We both have this same creator, God. Who made the heavens and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. It it echoes back to creation. It echoes back to the exodus. This is the same God that saved the people of Israel. But it's he created them and so we are accountable to this God. We're not autonomous like we want to believe. And, and the nations aren't autonomous. They are accountable to the Creator. And in the past, he says, in, in verse 16, God allowed them to walk in their own ways, meaning that He didn't just completely snuff them out right, right then and there. He allowed them to go because in His providential plan, He was going to bring Christ and then send this message of redemption back out to the nations of Genesis 10 so that the children of Abraham would become a blessing to all those nations again. Through the Christ. And so God is, has been patient. And now the time has come for every single person in every nation to repent and trust Christ. They are culpable in a new way now. And Paul just tries to establish some common ground right here at the end. He says, look, even in all this time where the nations were walking in their own ignorance and blindness. He established a witness for himself. In the seasons, in Doing good. His goodness is on display to you by feeding you, by sending rain, by doing these things. Filling your hearts with gladness. Just the created order is not meant to be worshipped, in other words. It's meant as a pointer back to the Creator. And so, it's such a travesty to worship the creation. That's kind of what Paul is getting at. But in spite of all this, look how rooted these people are in their idolatrous views. It says in verse 18, Even with these words... They scarcely restrained the people from offering sacrifice to them. They barely held back the reins there to keep, them, to keep the bull alive, <laughs> in other words. And so, idolatry is incredibly, incredibly blinding. And a miracle is not going to change anybody's heart. God must penetrate with the gospel, with the truth, and do the regenerating work. And so, even with these with these apostles pleading, it it doesn't restrain the people from from being just overly enamored enamored by them. And then that leads to the sort of final scene here, with uh, with a response to these apostles. You know, initially they're they're still just sort of fanatic they're just sort of fanatics. You know, it's like fan worship here. They're just going crazy for the apostles. But then on a dime, I want you to notice what happens. Look in verse 19. The Jews came from Antioch and Iconium. I mean, that's like over 100 miles away. So, Jordan, you're talking about that 100-mile race thing. I mean, these dudes are traveling from miles away. These Jews came from Antioch and Iconium. And having persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing that he was dead. That's nuts. One moment, literally, one verse, they're ready to honor them and worship to them, and in the next verse, they're ready to kill him. It's the insanity of idolatry, guys. But when the disciples gathered about Paul, verse 20, he rose up and entered the city, back into the same city, and on the next day, he went with Barnabas to Derby. And again, just a little summary statement. The first beginning of verse twenty-one: When they had preached the gospels of that city, that's Derby, made many disciples. They returned, and then that's going to narrate the return back. So, all I want to point out here is just this response from the crowds, so fickle that we see here. That those when when your idolatry is confronted, and you don't repent, it's only a matter of time before that. those that are confronting that idolatry and the Christ behind it become the enemy. And in fact, it's it's like less than a verse. It's just... Jews come against the apostles and there's tons of irony here. Tons of irony. Okay, it's sort of... These Jews are conservative Jews. They hate idolatry. They hate the worship of multiple gods. They pride themselves on not being idolatrous. And they join with the idolaters... To try to kill the guy that just preached a message pretty much straight from the Old Testament to these, to these g- g- Gentile idolaters. So there's a lot of irony going on here. Again, it just shows the blindness of their version of idolatry too. And so everybody's idolizing things and they're coming in and they're opposing the gospel. But God, in the midst of it all, resuscitates Paul and Paul goes back into the city, which sort of starts another theme that we're going to talk about next week, of the perseverance of Paul. And he's going to go back to all these churches, no doubt with blood caked on his face, bruises all over him, and look these churches square in the face and say, through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of heaven. So we're, we'll hit that next week. Uh, that's a big deal. This wasn't like some sort of, I think, resuscitation where he's completely healed. I think the disciples were around him. They encircled him, and then they helped him back into the city. And he went back into the city... To keep ministering, but also to, to stay the night there, because he probably couldn't travel that night. And then he went, made the journey to, to Derby. No doubt Paul, no doubt God was in the midst of that, working powerfully, but, uh, we're gonna see that, that this perseverance and suffering is a key theme through here. So, all I'm trying to do is just show you these four scenes that highlight this, this incredible, pervasive problem of idolatry that's gotta be addressed. And in this text, Luke makes us aware aware of the, to the dangers. He doesn't hold it back from us, and he also gives us a realistic perspective that when these idolatries are addressed, it doesn't always lead to repentance. In this case, it led to stoning for the apostle. But in spite of this, God did work very powerfully in the city, and we're going to come to find that later as, as Paul returns back to Lystra, the same city, and it says there he encourages the disciples, appoints elders in their church. God's doing something. God's at work. Don't worry about that. And so God is, is happening. People did repent in, under the ministry of Paul and Barnabas here in the city. But what Luke wants to highlight for us is not necessarily that, is the danger of idolatry. And so, As we reflect on this story, I just want to guide our thinking about the temptation of idolatry in our own lives first, and then just how this is connected to our evangelism and mission like we see here. So, just got a couple of statements here. Where do we go from this? How do we kind of think this through? How does it apply to us? So this text says we see a model sort of evangelism and boldness, but before we get there, before we can even get to evangelism, we've got to look at our own lives. And so the first... The first statement is just turn to the living God. Uh, are you dominated by false gods? Gotta ask that question. Are you dominated by false gods, pseudo-gods? So then I'd be like, okay, well, how, do, how do we determine that? What's, what's going on here? Let me just ask you some questions. Is your ultimate hope in getting something that you desperately want? Is that where your hope's rooted? Are you perpetually anxious? Angry, discontent, depressed. I'm talking perpetually here. Not that you fall into that at times, but are you perpetually those things. Is your happiness and joy rooted in the fulfillment of those desires? Then I've got to have these to be happy or fulfilled. Or is your joy and happiness rooted in tr- the trust and obedience that flows f- out of Christ? That's another sign that you're worshiping Christ. And, and these sinful indicators are, are sort of like your check engine light that, that you substituted. You've substituted an, an idol for the living God. And if your life's been dominated by these substitutes, the answer is always repentance. It's so simple. Let this text motivate you to turn back to God and away from these dead idols. They're, they can't deliver. And it's, it's just, it's insanity. And the living God stands ready to forgive you and receive you in Christ. And that's the message we've been seeing all throughout the book of Acts. I and mean, it's beautiful. And so that's just on the front end, I'll turn to the living God. And the second thing I would say, just as, the, as believers, just counseling us, we've got to beware of the temptation of idolatry. Uh, each one of us has to beware of that temptation. Once you're saved, it doesn't just go away. The propensity. Now, we're, we are crushed by it and when we see it in our hearts, but it's still there. And it's very subtle. We're often caught off guard because we don't. We think we don't struggle with it. We just assume we're we're doing all right. That we we worship Christ. That's our profession. You know, we've got. We've been saved, and so we're we're good. But the authors of the New Testament are more realistic than that, and they they are constantly warning us about the danger. Just one example is at the end of First John. The very last thing he says is, "My little children, or little children, keep yourselves from idols." Done, over. Book's done. Kind okay. of letters. Up, letters closed. It's like, okay, Uh that's helpful. Um, good to know. And it it's it's related to where he's been going. And it's but well, it, my point is just it's it's central to Christian life. This warning, even Christians like you and I can fall prey to, to worshiping idols. And so, again, it's it's not just the image, right? It's anything that takes the place of God in our hearts. And so. The sinful things that do that, are, that are expressly forbidden, are easier. You know, the pornography, the cheating on your exams, the fill-in-the-blank, the things we know are wrong, uh, that, you know, these desires are, are motivating us toward. Uh, there's there's an idolatry somewhere in there. We would need to root that out. But what's most subtle is the, the good things that can kind of take over in our hearts. They kind of climb up in there, and they, they take God's place. And we start thinking that we can't be okay without those things, um, like marriage. Uh schoolwork, you know, like I gotta get A's. If I don't get A's, then I'm I'm you know, this is my purpose for existence. Uh I gotta have time with friends. I I friends are everything to me, you know, I just gotta be included and in, in known and uh my career is the thing I'm pursuing most. So any of these things that are fine in of themselves, they're good gifts from God even. Can become can become idols if if we're not careful. And so how do we know? How do we know if they are or not? Ask yourself this question. Anything that we're willing to sin to get or sin to keep is an idol. So are you willing to sin to get the thing? Or are you willing to sin to keep the thing? That's a clear indicator that we're saying, God, we will disobey you in order to get the thing we want because we believe the thing we want is most necessary. It's our God. And you're just the way to get that, get that thing that I want. You're the means. God is the means to my God. We don't trust you to take care of us and provide what we need. And so that's, that's significant. So we, we want to be thinking through those things. And that leads me to my third point here is that we often need help in identifying the idols of our hearts. My experience is this. I'm sinning, right? And I know that I'm sinning, whether it's I'm anxious, I'm angry, or whatever, and I'm just in a rut. And that's like my check engine light. That's like, I need to take this thing in for a tune up. Alright? And I don't really know what's going on, and so I may just get with somebody that's wiser than me and say, help me think this through. I know that my heart is way off here, and I'm probably worshiping things that, that aren't right. Help me think it through. And then those people come alongside me and just begin to ask me questions and probe, and they can often see more clearly than me in this area, and they help me. So we often need help Identifying the, the idolatry in our hearts. And as we identify and, and tear those things down, we replace them with, with faith in Christ and obedience to him. That's how we grow in maturity. So the idol's got to be torn down. It's got to be identified, but it's got to be torn down and replaced with faith in Christ and, and a true worship of him and obedience to him. And this produces some pretty powerful fruit um, in our lives. Fruit that's like undeniable, and it's it's the path that we grow to maturity, and it's the, the way we gain wisdom, okay? The Lord will just sort of fuel our growth as we start uprooting the idols and putting on Christ. Now, look what happens. I'm almost done. I know we're over, but look what happens. Our growth, then, spills out into the assembly, into the body, okay? What do I mean by that? Well, as you start rooting out idolatry, and the Lord gives you insights into those things and starts uprooting that, and King Jesus is just conquering your heart progressively, guess what? You grow in your discernment. And somebody comes to you, or you go to that person, you see them enslaved, and now you're able to help them, actually able to help them. Versus like offering them sort of some platitudes, and be like, I don't know, you probably need to go see clay, or or whatever. I mean, that's okay too, but you're now equipped through this growth process to be able to help other people. And then guess what happens? It spills out into our evangelism. Okay, so fruit starts being produced. Idolatries are confronted, and now you know that it's clear to you. You see it because it was you, right? And now you're in the world. You're with your neighbor, or whatever, and they're just they're just enslaved to their gods. And you get to know them. You love on them, and love compels you to confront their idolatry, in the most gracious of terms. Of course, I'm not saying you know you're, you're coming at them. Paul did this in love, but. But it, it, this this process of identifying the idols, rooting them out, gives you the discernment that you need to see them in others. But, guess what it also does? It gives you the humility that you need to handle them with love. How? Because you were there, right? Like, that's me. And, and without Christ, without the truth, I'm there again. Like, there's no, there's no hope without this thing. So, so, not only do we have the discernment to be able to help people, but we also have the humility to be able to help people. Um, in our in our evangelism, in our discipleship. We're not above those temptations. And notice what else this does, guys. It's so good. It gives people hope of transformation. How many of you have had an accountability partner that struggles with the exact same thing as you? They're enslaved to it, just like you are. You know, you meet with them? Like, hey, did this this week? Oh, yeah, did this this week too. Yeah, we need to get better at that. Yeah, we do. All right. Let's try harder next week. Okay, good. Yeah, me too. Christ is merciful. Yeah, He is. Oh, yeah, He's totally merciful. And it's just just on and on the cycle goes, right? And then pretty soon, you know, you kind of feel good about that. You are like, yeah, somebody else is struggling. But pretty soon, you are like, is Christ even real? Like, am I even getting any any victory? Like, it's how is this going to how does how is my life actually changing? Well, you see somebody that's uprooted, an idol in their heart, and they're growing in maturity, and you are like. Okay, if you really want Christ, you're gonna follow that person. You're like, okay, teach me how you did that. Teach me how the Spirit works in your life to, to give that transformation. And the unbelieving world, those whom Christ is drawing to Himself, will see that and will say, that's real. That's the real deal. That's the power of the Gospel on display in your life. And at the same time, guess what it will also do? It will evoke, you start, you start saying, that's evil. That's an idol. And people love their idolatry. So it will evoke either this drawing that Christ does, or it will evoke hatred. We can't be afraid of it. And I think that's why this story is included here, is to see through many tribulations. It's hard. Through many tribulations we'll enter the kingdom of God, but God is at work in this. So, I said a lot there about idolatry at the end. There's a lot here. So, kind of cue in on that third point here. We need help, and if you need help, come see us. We've got people that are very equipped in our church to be able to help you think through those things. So, does that make sense? All right, let's pray.